Lord, we thank you for the chance to come together and uh, to begin studying your, um, our document of, of what we believe your word says. And Lord, we pray that as we search your uh, word, we would come to a fuller understanding. Lord, where uh, the, the Baptists who came before us were in error, we pray that we would uh, find the truth. Lord, we do trust that most of uh, what they laid down was solid and, and biblical. And Lord, we pray that we would benefit greatly from it. Uh, and, and profit from it, and, and, and Lord, find ourselves more able to articulate what we believe and why, and Lord, also all the more uh, in a position to, to just be in awe of you and what you've done, and, and Lord, um, how you call us to yourself, uh, and instead of casting us away when we've turned away from you, you came and uh, you won us back. And, and Lord, even as we ran away, you, the good shepherd came and, and uh, followed us until we fell over from exhaustion, picked us up, put us around your shoulders and, and brought us home rejoicing. And we're so thankful, so thankful for that. We thank you and praise you and pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right. So we talked about what the uh, catechism is last week. And it is a series of questions and answers. You'll see that each page just has a brief question, an answer to that question, and then a few scripture texts afterwards. Uh, And there's a lot of white space. And that's for you to write in. So that's exciting. Um, If you got one of these that's half inch, three of them I accidentally grabbed were half inch. You may want to swap it out for one that's up here that's a full inch um, so that there's room to fit. But let's go ahead and start at the beginning, which is according to is it what, Mary Poppins or uh, uh, that nun from Sound of Music or something said that was a good place. And so the first question is on the second page. And what I want us to do as we get to a new question is to read the question and answer together in unison, because that will help to cement it in our noggins. So let us read question one together. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now what you will have to endure is that I uh, am going to introduce each of these with a very old-timey illustration and uh, they're charming or not. I don't know. The late Lady Glenorchy, in her diary, relates her being seized with a fever which threatened her life, during the course of which, she says, the first question of the Assembly's catechism was brought to my mind. What is the chief end of man? As if someone had asked it. When I considered the answer to it, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, I was struck with shame and confusion. I found I had never sought to glorify God in my life, nor had any idea what was meant by enjoying Him forever. Death and judgment were set before me. My past sins came to my remembrance. I saw no way to escape the punishment due unto them, nor had I the least glimmering hope of obtaining the pardon of them through the righteousness of another." From this unhappy state, she was shortly after delivered by believing on the Lord Jesus as the only Savior of the guilty. So the catechism, which is this dusty old cage, 
in which free thought is forbidden, actually brought this woman to faith. Uh, and I believe that it can have a great, great effect on us as well. Um, but as we read this first question, we see right off the bat the potential for anachronistic language to get in the way. Words that mean something just is slightly different from what we generally mean, because this was written down uh, in 1677 using a document that was written in 1646. So essentially, same generation or one generation later from the King James Bible. We're talking about uh, language that has since evolved and changed quite a bit. And when we read, what is the chief end of man? We might say, eh, I don't quite get what you're saying. I mean, it, it's obvious from the context and from the answer. Um, but ultimately, when we say end, we usually mean one thing. Uh, and in that case, what is the end of man? Well, he dies, right? It's the end of the story. The, or maybe if we want to be really biblical, we'd say he dies. And after that, the judgment, quoting Hebrews. Um, but, oh, let me get out my, do I have a... And, oh, someone stole my pen. I might see if there's one under here. Otherwise, I'm just going to mime writing because it helps me. I've got a couple contenders. Contenders? No, don't say that. Um, what we're thinking about here is actually a very biblical word. The word that is translated end often in, in the King James Bible. Does anyone know it? It's from the Greek. It starts with T. <laughs> That's not it. Is, are you good? There we go, sort of. It is the word telos. T-E-L-O-S. Telos is the word uh, in mind by the divines as they craft this question, and it's one of those words that's worked its way into our language, right? A telescope, which is something you look through in order to see something far away, is a bit of a stretch using that as the illustration. I might say, like, you know, you're watching a, a movie about cowboys or a posse tracking outlaws. The guy will pull out, like, a spyglass telescope type thing and look through, or Captain Jack Sparrow, for example, look through and see where they're headed, pointing it at the destination. Or maybe even though it's tell us that we're focusing on a telescope, if we just thought of the scope, right? If you have a rifle and you're pointing it at a target and you're, I don't know, cheating, you look through the scope and you see what you're aiming at. So this word tell us, it means end and it also means something a little different. So we see, we see it used for like the beginning and the end, right? The Satan's end will come. But in James 5.11, in the King James, we read, you have seen the end of the Lord. So Satan will come to an end, in a sense. Everything cool? Very loud. Um, and the Lord has this end in a different sense, which is an aim, a goal, what he's pointed at. Uh, you have seen the end of the Lord, how compassionate and merciful. The uh, ESV translates that, you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So a man or a woman's chief end is the one thing that they are focused on, aiming at, um, that they're chasing for happiness or satisfaction or fulfillment 
in their life. In fact, I think it's very fitting that in the New Testament, the most common word for sin, hamartia, literally means to miss the mark. So we have built into that the notion that you're pointing at a particular mark. So it's, it's kind of a, a military word um, for if you were practicing with javelin or, or shooting an arrow, you, you're aiming at something and you sin when you miss the mark. But what does it look like to hit the mark? That's, that's this question. What, what might be a more modern way to pose it? I think that's something that would always be worth... Um, what is the chief purpose? Rick Warren thinks so. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's in the same semantic domain, I think. Maybe, uh, in fact, when I think of end in this way, back to Ch- Captain Jack Sparrow, remember? Um, Snorlando Bloom wants to go and rescue the girl, and Captain Jack says, to what end and purpose? Okay, so they're kind of in the same ballpark. What is the chief purpose of man? Um, any other? What if we wanted to get real, like, the message about it and kind of paraphrase? Path? Path? Yeah, I think those are slightly different, right? One emphasizing where we're headed toward and one the, the way that we get there. What if I just said, what is man here for? Maybe a little bit broad, but why, that... Why was man created? What's the why? What's the meaning of life? <laughs> why was man created? Okay. Um, I feel like there are answers that are a little further back now. Like um, God's in his sovereignty... Uh, you know, you read God had created all these things, and yet uh, there was still some uh, missing piece, and then he creates man in his image. Um, what is the meaning of life? That's okay. That's about as broad as what are we here for, right? Um, what is the chief end of man at the end of the day is probably just the best way to ask it, and then you explain what it means. <laughs> the answer given is three-part, I think. First of all, man's chief end is to glorify God. And if you will look on, uh, the, at the little two proof texts you've been given, one is 1 Corinthians 10.31, one is Psalms 73.25 and 26. Uh, and I also want to point us to Romans 11.36. Aaron's going to ask me to repeat all those, so you already have one of them down there. But the, this one, Romans eleven thirty six, reads thus: For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever, Amen. The to whom be glory forever modifies the him, by the way, not the all things. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. That kind of tells us this answer right there in one little verse. Of him, he's the source of everything. Right? John chapter 1, nothing exists apart from his creation. To him, toward him. That's this same notion of aiming toward him. To him and his glory are all things. And, and for him. So we have... 
everything existing to glorify God, certainly then we who are made in his image, the crowning achievement of creation, are all the more intended to glorify him. Secondly, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 10.31. You might flip over to it if you've got a Bible. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now that's also very straightforward and very much in line with this answer. Everything you do, not just when you come to church or when you evangelize, not just when you're singing praises to God, but everything you do, even the situation here involved something as mundane as eating and drinking. And not in the context of some holy feast, but rather it's talking about what kind of stuff you should pick up at the supermarket. Whether this meat sacrificed to idols is okay or whether it's not. And, and uh, it, the answer comes out, look, whatever you're doing, just make sure it's toward the end, the purpose of glorifying God. What does it mean to glorify God, though? That's, that's the big question. I even found my book. Did I bring it in here with me? Here it is. Does it mean to, uh, to make God more glorious? To glorify? Do we really have the ability to do that? He's, he's all glorious. Right, okay. So that seems like it's out of the question. Well, what does it mean, then? Let me read an ex excerpt from... Don't waste your life. Look, I found my paperback. Um, and this book is kind of largely written around this first question. Uh, and this is what Pastor Emeritus John Piper says. The Bible is crystal clear. God created us for his glory. Thus says the Lord, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. That's Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Life is wasted when we do not live for the glory of God. And I mean all of life. It is all for his glory. That is why the Bible gets down into the details of eating and drinking. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We waste our lives when we do not weave God into our eating and drinking and every other part by enjoying and displaying Him. What does it mean to glorify God? It may get a dangerous twist if we are not careful. Glorify is like the word beautify. But beautify usually means make something more beautiful than it is, improve its beauty. That is emphatically not what we mean by glorify in relation to God. God cannot be made more glorious or more beautiful than he is. He cannot be improved, quote, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, which is Acts 17, 25 from Mars Hill. Glorified does not mean add more glory to God. It is more like the word magnify. But here, too, we can go wrong. Magnify has two distinct meanings. In relation to God, one is worship and one is wickedness. We can magnify like a telescope, or like a microscope. When you magnify like a microscope, you make something tiny look bigger than it is. A dust mite can look like a monster. Pretending to magnify God like that is wickedness. But when you magnify like a telescope, you make something unimaginably great look like what it really is. 
With the Hubble Space Telescope, pinprick galaxies in the sky are revealed for the billion star giants that they are. Magnifying God like that is worship. We waste our lives when we do not pray and think and dream and plan and work toward magnifying God in all spheres of life. God created us for this, to live our lives in a way that makes Him look more like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that He really is. In the night sky of this world, God appears to most people, if at all, like a pinprick of light in a heaven of darkness. But He created us and called us to make Him look like what He really is. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. We are meant to bring forth in the world what He is really like. What a great description of what it means to glorify God, to bring into focus who God is. Um, And, you know, like there's a a phrase that was bouncing around three or four years ago. It might have even come from like some of the reformed rap. um, And and it was in different songs and it was in a lot of, you know, pastor clips and stuff. Uh, It had to do with making God famous. And, uh, Every time I heard that, I kind of thought, yeah, I get it, but it almost sounds like that microscope thing. He needs us as like his PR wonks to go out there and make him famous. He's already, everybody knows about him. Romans, Romans 1 and 2, right? His eternal power and his divine nature. Everyone already knows about God. We need to show him for what he is, which is he's not uh, the guy up there with the anvil waiting for you to mess up so he could squash you. Rather, he is love and mercy and, and power and might and holiness and, and all perfection. The glory of God, says Calvin, is when we know what he is. And as those created in his image, we are to reflect it. So let me ask this question. What creatures, or even what created things, creatures implies breath and some kind of self-awareness, what, what creatures... What created things glorify God? If you had to name some. All of them. Okay, how so? I created them, so he must have done for a reason, so they... Okay. They just, it's like God can't be any more glorious. The stuff he created was for his glory, I think. Do you got any scripture to back that up, Sean, or are you just going from the hip? I'm just going from the hip. You're right, though. Uh... The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Uh, Everything that's, all the created world shows that God is glorious. So is there a difference then between how, say, um, a bacterium or a walrus glorifies God and how you and I glorify God? Well, yeah, because we're creating God's image. So we do things that other creatures cannot. Okay. Such as? Well, we actually can tell other people about him. I don't think that there's a lot of evangelism going on in the animal kingdom. The walrus community is actually very active in handing out tracts. Like, they're not, they're not necessarily aware that there's a creator. They have instinct and they, mm-hmm. you know, occupy their time with trying to survive. And we have the benefit of well, a lot of people do occupy their time with trying to survive, but ideally you have the benefit of occupying a lot of your time with uh, learning more about God and teaching others about God. And Yeah, yeah, certainly so. It's part of being an image bearer. 
Um, we might make the distinction that we'll make later as we talk about God's word between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what you see about God everywhere, and no one can deny it, and it's part of the reason why everyone everywhere is religious. And, and by everyone, I mean all peoples, right? Whether it's Paul walking around Athens, or if you go down to the you know, the tribe in Peru that hasn't been touched in 10,000 years by an outsider. Everyone is, to some degree, religious. Um, and that comes partially from the law written on the heart, uh, fractured by sin now, but also just from the fact that we live here. And people are like, hmm, I think I know what happened. And so, yes, there, there is a sense in, this, in which there's this general glorification, but we're called to a very specific glorification. And it's rooted in the scriptures. It's rooted in what God has done. Mostly it's rooted in the gospel, what God has done through Christ. First uh, Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That sums it up. We have the story of being called out of darkness and into the wonderful light, and we declare that, and we declare his praises. Uh, Somebody flip over to John 17. What's going on in John 17? Yes, Mimi, 10 gold stars. We're going to look just a little uh, kind of before. Uh, No, we're going to look right in the the midst of that. Scratch that. Let's look at 17.4. And I think we have not Jesus giving us a definition of what it means to glorify, but we do see, I think, what Jesus assumes it means. Someone read that verse for us, John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. There's two ways grammatically that that could be sussed. One is, I accomplished everything you gave me to do, and then I was like, now what do I do? Now I'll glorify you on earth. Uh, A chronological relationship, but clearly the context in common sense tells us that the relationship is, I glorified you on earth by doing everything you gave me to do. So everything applied to the nature and capacity of each part of creation glorifies God by doing what it was created to do. But we, as his image bearers, are given that specific task of bringing him glory by proclaiming his glory and proclaiming this, the praises of him and proclaiming what he did when he brought us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So to glorify God, part two is, and to enjoy him. What on earth is that supposed to mean? This might be the more difficult part of the question, I think. Or the answer, anyway. To enjoy God. Well, would it be um, to experience joy through our relationship with Him? Okay. What does that look like? I would think that that would look like having joy despite circumstances because you know where you stand with it. So, so the source of joy in your life being not happiness from what's happening 
but from your connection with your creator and savior, I think you're certainly barking up the right tree. Anyone else have any insight? What, what does it mean to enjoy? You ever enjoyed God? Anyone done it? I, I think that it's maybe easier to to understand through like you in, if you enjoy God if you enjoy other people that He created you enjoy the the creation that He created you're enjoying Him through those things, right? Mm-hmm. So you you can't necessarily you can reflect on on God in a in a in a sense of you know His amazing awe and, and all that but you live your life here. And so it's almost like you're trying to tie those two things together. I don't know if that makes sense. It didn't to me, but maybe someone else was with you. <laughs> See, just from a different angle, maybe it's like, um, well, you, if you're enjoying him, you're not. What is what is that pushing out? Mm. Besides enjoyment, maybe I don't know, just you know, resentment or oh. other things. To enjoy the things, and you know, maybe we can think of a lot of things in life that we don't like, you know, maybe losing somebody or something. But, um, you know, we're called to enjoy God and His divine plan for our lives. Interesting. So now you're saying perhaps in a moment of trial or suffering or whatever, you might say, Hold on, am I, am I at this moment still enjoying God? Meaning, is my heart in the right place? Am I fulfilling the chief end for which I was created? Well, in the garden, Adam and Eve enjoyed actually talking and walking with him. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that our goal would be to reach the point where our time we're talking and walking with him mm-hmm. would be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. The time to be with him personally, one on one. Right. I think that's certainly true. So, so you're saying the garden before the fall, God came in the cool of the evening and walked with them. And you know that was the highlight of the day. They looked forward to it. That was enjoyable. So, yeah, that ought to be kind of a highlight for us is communing with God uh, rather than something I have to do to check off a list. I should go to church. I should open the word. I should be in prayer. Um, what tends to happen when these things are viewed as uh, requirements checklist items is they're done minimally. Oh, I read a little section. I read a chapter maybe real quick. I prayed, bing, bang, boom. All right, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. I did that for the day. Whereas we're called to pray without ceasing. So if we really enjoy it, you know, we don't, we don't want to part. We don't, we don't want to get on with our day away from God. We want to be in our service of God and and our communion with God. Yeah, wonderful. Let me ask this question. Is enjoying God a secondary end? In other words, could you switch the two? What is the chief end of man? Could you say to enjoy God and glorify him forever and not lose anything? Or is this secondary? Like first and foremost to glorify God and then to enjoy him. I don't think you can do one without the other. <laughs> okay, so they're so intrinsically tied together that neither of them could be primary. Yeah, Roger. Also, I noticed in the garden right after they stopped going glorifying God, that's when they were afraid to walk with God because they hid in the bushes. Okay. 
So maybe that's one thing that could stop the enjoyment is, you know, eating the fruit you weren't supposed to eat. Right. So you can't enjoy God without glorifying him. And... Well, I think about it, the whole world glorifies God and they don't all enjoy him. So. Right. Okay. So I think we're, we're falling into this, this question of, I mean, even the most hard-hearted sinner who hates God and blasphemes him, in a sense glorifies him in that God is sovereign and, and so he's glorified in everything happening, but we're called to glorify him in a very particular way. Uh, and we can't, in, in a way where we're actually fulfilling this chief end for which we were made, that we were unregenerate, unable to fulfill. And so in that sense, I think Roger's on to something that when you are not glorifying him, you can't enjoy him. And I, I, I've been there where, well, still holding back an awful lot, wanting to kind of have the emotional fuzzies of being in God's presence and uh, it's it, it doesn't quite work. The the algebra of it all kind of falls apart. Yeah. Well, and then it makes me think, though, when I look over what we said about what glorifying is, I, it seems like there could be someone who, just like when um, people were saying, oh, should we tell these people to stop doing uh, miracles or stop preaching in the name? And he said, no, as long as Christ has preached, you know, even if it's out of false motives or whatever. Um, so I can see somebody who was maybe a, a pastor or an evangelist who's verbally glorifying God and magnifying his glory for other people mm-hmm. but not enjoying God himself. Like, I can right. see that happening. Right, finding perhaps their uh, satisfaction in the Gulf Stream jet that they tricked their people into buying him instead of in God himself, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, certainly that, that can happen. Um, but can the reverse? I, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't think so. I, Piper has this twist on, on the answer given when he says, we could, we could say, what is the chief end of man to glorify God by enjoying him forever? What think you of that? That kind of reminds me of one of the papers you gave us earlier, like maybe a couple years ago, something about Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism. That would have been nine years ago, Roger, but your memory is impeccable. Yeah, yeah, so that was a a phrase that Piper quoted. That's what he's talking about. He says, Christian hedonism meaning there's no difference when I am in God's will, there's no difference between me going after my happiness and going after God's glory. These things should be realigned, my will and God's will, like, like they were intended to be. And so it's not wrong for me to seek my own happiness as long as I'm seeking it in God's glory. So he's most, what's the phrase? Alex, you may, you're, you're a Piper guy. God is most... Yes, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Uh, almost like this symbiotic thing, not that God needs us, but that his glory kind of swells and glows in our satisfaction in him being fulfilled. And it's just a wonderful thing. Um, and that, yeah, that, I, I wish I had thought to print out an article on that. It's a, it's a very, um, it, it was controversial because of the word. Hedonism usually we think of as meaning, you know, chasing after physical gratification, and it takes the form of 
conspicuous consumption and, and drugs and alcohol and lots of free sex and stuff. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm talking about finding happiness in the source where I was intended to, in satisfaction and gratification. And it's good to do that. And it's okay even to kind of want the reward for my glorifying God because it's offered to me. Uh, I mean, Jesus went to the cross for the reward set before him, right? I mean, it's the prize set before him. We, we emulate him when we say, okay, God, I want what you want for me. And I chase after it. And if my being fulfilled and feeling fulfilled in that is part of what motivates me, that's why it's a two-part answer. Glorifying God means enjoying him forever. Here's a question. How do we enjoy God here and now? And I think the answer we find throughout the Psalms, as we watch a number of people, mostly David, go through coronations and victories and things, and then also defeats and being chased into caves and running for their, his life and, and, and the whole gamut of the human experience. Uh, and in, in Psalm 23, we, we find God comforting. And then in Psalm 34, we read, taste and see that the Lord is good. We know God's love for us. We experience his goodness. We turn to him when things are going well to praise him and thank him. We turn to him when things are going crummy in order to be comforted. Uh, and I would suggest mostly we uh, glorify him and enjoy him when we find rest in him. This is what Jesus is offering very consistently through his ministry because he's preaching and teaching a world that has been just crushed under this heavy yoke of the law. And it was rooted in the scriptures and it was so close uh, that it, it was so dangerous that everybody thought, if I keep on piling it on my own shoulders, this is how I glorify God. I, I keep upright on my own two knobby knees and I, don't, and, I, and I don't fall and I hold fast. And Jesus came and said, if you're feeling like that, come to me and I will give you rest. This is how we enjoy God when we rest in him. When we, when we say, I don't, I know I can't do this myself. I know I can't endure this myself. I know I can't fix this myself, but I can rest in God all the same. Um, I don't think we have a choir this week, right? I can keep going. Okay. So the, the last part, and we're going to go back and discuss each of these and see if you have insights and stuff. But the last, the last part is just a simply the word or the two words in, in this uh, text, forever. And that's, that's a big claim, forever. And only really, I mean, God can, I mean, we can make, I remember I, I was just learning Hebrew and I was watching uh, CNN and... Uh, Bibi Netanyahu back then was, there was, I think it was the first time he was the... Uh, President, Prime Minister, whatever they are, uh, and and he was doing a um, joint press conference, and, and gosh, this may have been far enough back that it was Clinton in office. Anyway, he said uh, he, he was he was talking about the relationship between Israel and and the United States, and I was so jazzed that I could actually understand some of it, even though it was modern Hebrew. And he said, uh, Israel and the United States will be friends, olam. 
which, hey, is going to come up in the sermon this morning. Uh, and and uh, the guy translating says, and Israel and the United States will be friends. And Netanyahu said, forever, because he speaks fluent English, obviously, and corrected him, you missed forever. And I thought, man, that makes sense that you would think maybe the guy's overselling it a little bit and making promises that he doesn't know he can keep. I mean, a thousand years from now. But no, he said emphatically forever. When a human makes that claim, uh, grain of salt, right? When God makes this claim, and, and again, we believe this is certainly rooted in Scripture, uh, not just the pipe dream of some Presbyterians in 1646, we can take it to the bank. Now, that means, I mean, Jesus talks about this age and the age to come, eternal life. Certainly, we enjoy him now. How will our enjoyment of God change in the age to come? We won't have anything holding it back. We won't have sin, the world, but... Okay. We'll be able to thrive and flourish. Sean's eyebrows went straight up and then straight down. What are you thinking, my friends? We'll see him face to face. Okay, yes. Yeah, so you're thinking of a uh, text that says we see him now as through a glass darkly, which I always had the wrong picture of, like a dirty window. Somebody trying to like rub it with a, with a rag that does nothing, like in movies. You know, just, uh, um, when really the, the, the word we're looking at here is like a mirror. The mirror they had, the glass they would look in, it would just be polished metal. You could sort of see yourself, but the idea is you're looking into it and you're seeing God behind you. Um, and you're not seeing him clearly. You're seeing, you're just, you're seeing true stuff, but you, there's, it's, it's definitely not HD. It's not um, the extent of who he is. And when we see him in the age to come, it's as simple as like, like turning around and looking directly at him and beholding his glory, which now would consume us um, to be fully in his glory. Yeah, Roger. Right, yeah. So, yeah, throughout the Old Testament, if someone sees God, like remember in, in John 1, no man has seen God at any time. And you go, wait a minute, Moses saw God. Well, when he said, I want to see you, it, we, we read that <laughs> as a kid, anybody go to a church as a kid where it was King James and you'd hear this text and God passed by and Moses saw his hind parts and you're like, ah, <laughs> what it means is kind of the path he left. So God passed by and Moses saw just like the residual glory or I don't know, everything kind of burned away or whatever it was, it, it saw just, just what he could handle. Uh, even at the transfiguration, when uh, the veil was pulled back and Moses and Elijah are there hobnobbing and everybody's just blown away by the situation, it's still not a complete um, unveiling of God's glory. This is, this is not something we could handle uh, at present. And yet, this is something that we will enjoy forever. That's wonderful. So we won't just be walking with him in the evening. As in the garden, it'll be better than the garden. There you go. Yeah, and, and when we talk about justified, and people say just as if I'd never sinned, that's how you remember what it means. It's clever, but not, I mean, we're not restoring the precarious situation of Eden where maybe I'll trip and fall again, and God comes by now and again. No, no, no. God's presence comes, his, his dwelling comes to earth, so that heaven and earth are now synonymous, 
And we're in a far infinitely better situation than Adam and Eve because we have now not just my sin washed away, but positive righteousness from Christ imputed to me so that God looks at me and I'm righteous with the righteousness of Christ. By the way, if you wanted to write down that uh, through a glass darkly, that's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Um, so the, the now and the enjoying him now in biblical typological fashion is a first fruits. It's a, a promise of, a pledge of the everlasting enjoyment, which will blow away the now. And I think also a corollary of this might be that if you don't enjoy God's presence now, if a given person is, you know, well, yeah, I got God in my hip pocket because just in case, but I don't really, meh, doesn't do anything for me. I don't enjoy his presence. I want to enjoy it forever, certainly. For those who, who think that suddenly their affection, their end, their aim is going to fall into place, uh, I believe they're going to have a, a rude awakening that, that those who would not enjoy him in the now and in the midst of trials and struggles would not enjoy him uh, when those things are removed. Uh, it's forever because, and here's a little play on words, God's glory, well, it does have an end, has no end, right? God's glory is eternal, and therefore our enjoyment of him cannot reach an end either. Uh, God's not the kind of fleeting enjoyment that we usually chase after, that buzz is going to wear off, that television show is going to get old, that person who makes your heart go pitter-pat is going to well, they're going to get boring and they're going to fart in front of you or whatever's going to happen. It's not, something's going to, everything that we think is, oh, this is it. This, I've bottled it. I found it, is going to fade, but not God's glory and not our enjoyment of him. It's not fleeting. Um, it's forever. And that, that word forever, it's found four times in the catechism. Uh, the continuance of Christ's two distinct natures fully God and fully man, forever. That, that, that It wasn't just a part-time thing that he did in order to get through to us. The second time is that God's kingdom, power, and glory endure forever. The third is that the pains of hell endure forever. And I guess really that's the fourth because the first is here, that the enjoyment of God by believers is forever. La'olam, which literally means to forever. La is one of those little prefixive preposition things that Hebrew does. To, to infinity and beyond, uh, to quote St. Buzz of Lightyear. Um, to forever will be our enjoyment of God. So here's another question to ponder. Do we have time to ponder it? How about this? I leave you to ponder it this week. And uh, it won't, we won't always take more than one week on one question. Sometimes we'll get through three or four in a, in a week. But um, this is a big one. The first, you know, you always start with an important one. So the question is this, and maybe jot this down. Um, write, it, write it on your face so that you'll see it later when you look in the mirror to come here. Uh, how can these two things be one end? That seems like a bit of a cheat, right? What is the chief end of man? Well, this and this. Um, Sean, I think, already maybe sort of answered it for us. But maybe think if you can come up with a scripture that, that uh, helps us to understand this. Or a 
situation, a story, uh, experience in your life that could help us to understand. How are these two things, one end, one aim, one purpose, and why is that important? So we'll probably take the first third to half of next week, finishing up with this question, uh, and then we will move on to question two. Uh, like I said, I'll have some um, spine things that are the right size to slide in. Make sure you write your name on the front cover sheet before you slide it in. <laughs> and then you can write it on the spine too. And I'm going to encourage you to just leave them here um, because then you can't forget them. So I think what we'll do is clean out part of that built-in shelf back there, or I'll just drag another shelf in here. For now, maybe put them under the organ bench. Just leave them here, and then next week you can come in, you can find your name, you can pull it out, and we're all ready to go. Um, and we won't miss anything. All right, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you created us, that you created us in your image, that you created us with a purpose and aim uh, Lord, a, a, an end that we would glorify you and enjoy you forever. And Lord, we know we don't deserve to enjoy you, nor do we deserve to glorify you. And yet you give us this great honor of doing so. And we are so thankful that you have chosen to enter into fellowship with us that will go to forever, to infinity. Lord, that we will be able to never exhaust learning about who you are because you are infinite. Never exhaust your mercy and goodness and your wisdom and your holiness and your power and all of the things that make you our God. And Lord, we thank you so much that you are giving us that, that eternal opportunity. And Lord, we pray that in the now, in the midst of busy schedules and struggles at work or school or with family or neighbors, that Lord, we would focus as well on glorifying you and enjoying you with our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.